Welcome to the Operatic Past Cast, a presentation and preservation of operatic memories and impressions, produced by Donald Cullop. Episode 126. On May 17, 1985, the BBC aired a part of a series on five French singers, this one concerned with French soprano Germaine Lubin. Her early years and heritage are spoken of, as well as her personality traits, the development of her voice, her debut at 22, her calling card role of Elsa, her problematic low range and other aspects of her technique, working with composer Richard Strauss, vocal acting, Bayreuth and the Nazi era, and the German approach to music making.
Elizabeth's aria that opens Act Two of Tannhäuser as the young girl expresses her joy at Tannhäuser's return, safe, as she thinks, from the seductive spell of the Venusberg. Beautiful singing by any standards. But as it happens, Elizabeth was not one of Germaine Lubin's favourite roles. This not for any purely vocal reasons, as you heard, she takes the top B toward the end of that aria in her stride. But Elizabeth is a victim, as are Sieglinde and Marguerite in Gunnar's Faust, and Lubin had scant sympathy for such roles. Off stage, as we'll see, life was to get its own back on her in ironical and tragic fashion. Germaine Leontine Angelique Lubin was born in Paris on the 1st of February 1890. Her parentage was mixed. She used to describe herself as a quarter Polish, a quarter Arab, and the rest from Alsace. Her father was a doctor, and in Germaine's early years the family was out in French Guiana. When she was eight, her mother brought her back to Paris, and it was hearing a contralto singing at the Opera Comique that decided her on her life's vocation. At the age of eighteen, she began her studies at the Conservatoire. Her voice apart, the two most striking things about Lubin were her beauty, blue heavy-lidded eyes, long blonde hair and perfect complexion, and her independence. The combination of the two was often to cause problems. At the Conservatoire she refused to be chaperoned by her mother, and when a man began following her regularly to and from her classes, she characteristically took the initiative, advanced on him and pressed a sou into his hand. Years later, when she was famous, she met him again at a reception. It was he who blushed. Slightly more professional was the interest taken in her by the new director of the conservatoire, Gabriel Forêt. He'd summon her from her singing classes and accompany her while she sang his songs, as he said, in a voice quite unlike any other. And she always recalled the stress he laid on having the mute syllables of the text clearly articulated and not sung palely or in any sense thrown away. Here she is singing Au Bord de l'eau, and you can hear on the final syllables of words like passe, espace, and lasse, how she makes the final E's round and full. Tout ce qu'il 
Fouquet was not insensible to Lubin's beauty, and when the piano part permitted, would rest a hand lightly on her waist, calling her my beautiful statue. This observation was very exact. Lubin's singing teacher despaired of her lack of physical agility, and still more of a coldness in her demeanour. He had serious doubts whether her personality would come over to an audience. Well, he needn't have worried. The sheer quality of the voice, aided and abetted by the blue eyes and the blonde hair, was enough to make up for any deficiencies in her acting. In 1912, at the age of 22, she won all three first prizes for singing at the Conservatoire. Before that, she'd had an offer from the Théâtre de la Monnaie in Brussels, but she wanted to stay in France. And in November 1912, she made her debut as Antonia in The Tales of Hoffmann. A taxing role, some would say, for a girl fresh out of college. Lubin made light of the difficulties. Trills and a high D were perfectly in place, it seems. But she was aware of problems with the lower end of the voice, and she went to the famous soprano Felia Litvine, then nearing the end of her singing career. I don't give lessons, said Litvine, but sing something anyway. Lubin obliged. Ah, said Litvine, we start straight away. And the lessons went on regularly for ten years. Opera functioned only sporadically in Paris during the First World War, but what was put on involved Lubin as often as not. The confirmation of her place as the up-and-coming soprano of her day came with the victory celebrations on the 14th of July, 1919, when she emerged on the balcony outside the opera in one of the intervals of Massenet's Thais and sang the Marseillaise over the heads of an enormous crowd. Patriotism had also dictated that the works of Wagner be banned from the French musical scene. This was a grave deprivation, considering the popularity of his music in France from the 1880s until 1914, when Parsifal was first given in Paris. Slowly, after the war, pleasure gained ground over patriotism, and in January 1921, Duval Cure returned to the opera. Lubin sang Sieglinde at the second performance. As I said, the role of a victim, and so not one of her favourites. She made it quite clear, as only she could, that her sights were really set on Brunhilde. But before that happy occasion, which came about in 1928, she caused a sensation in a Wagnerian role which lay at least on the road to Brunhilde, that of Elsa in Lohengrin. When the Paris Opera revived Lohengrin in 1922, the director, Jacques Rouchet, initially gave the part of Elsa to Fanny Eldi, whom you can hear in the third of these programmes. But Lumer besieged his office and made such a fuss that the poor man gave in, and Eldi was replaced after the opening night. News of Lubin's success as Elsa soon spread, and in March 1924, she became the first French singer since the war to appear at the Vienna Staatsoper. It's worth noting that she took the opportunity to plead for greater cooperation between France and Germany, in particular urging French impresarios to put on Richard Strauss's operas. According to her, Strauss was keen to promote his works in France, and it was only pride that held him back from making the first move. Once again, Lubin's Elsa was a triumph. In her interpretation, wrote one critic, Elsa is not a Gretchen or a Cation, but a princess full of spirit, who takes her destiny and shapes it with a royal force and superiority.
champion has already appeared to her in a vision. The Viennese critics were impressed not only by Lubin's regal bearing, but by the voice itself. Julius Kongold, the successor to Edward Hanslick on the Neue Freie Presse, wrote of it as a silvery soprano of clear timbre. At the top it sounds like a high oboe, with the pure and striking colour of a young boy's voice. And he went on to praise the clarity of her diction, the delicacy of her phrasing, and the mixture of musicality and dramatic feeling. The top of the voice is certainly remarkably pure, with none of the sluggishness that her solid tone in the middle register half leads you to expect. But as I've said, this part of her voice never did cause her any bother. The troublesome area was towards the lower end, and her difficulties here were overcome by sheer hard work, so that by 1935 she could claim she spent far more time thinking than practising. The secret of the very clean attack she made on notes high and low was one of timing. She would breathe in through the nose, and at the very moment when the breath reached its limit, when she felt a sort of suffocation behind the cheekbones, that was the moment to begin the note. In later years, when she was teaching, she'd say to a pupil, Imagine you're in a salon, and someone comes in suddenly. At the very moment of surprise, the breath is suspended. Ah, there you are. That's when the sound is at its cleanest. Lubin also sang, on that visit to Vienna in 1924, the main part in Streiss's Ariadne of Naxos and at one point executed such a beautiful high pianissimo that Elizabeth Schumann, playing one of the nymphs, exclaimed audibly, Ah, bravo, Germain! Strauss and his librettist Hoffmannsthal were also pleased, though Strauss couldn't help noticing that her acting was a little wooden. Back in Paris, producers had already stopped giving her instructions. She never followed them, and instead improvised different moves at every performance. This independent attitude can't have been easy to work with, 
and she was quick to resent independence elsewhere, as among the traditionally sullen and uncooperative stagehands at the opera. She was playing another Ariadne in Duca's Ariane Barbe Bleu, and was furious to hear the stagehands talking behind the scenery. Came a scene where Ariane breaks the windows of the prison holding Bluebeard's wives, and Bluebeard put her head through and issued an ultimatum. Either they stopped talking straight away, or else she would stop singing, and march up to the footlights and explain to the audience why. They knew she was quite capable of doing so, and she sang on undisturbed. For Lubin, it was the voice that mattered. If she could act well enough vocally, then she felt carefully rehearsed gestures were beside the point. Everything would flow from the voice. Perhaps the best example of her vocal acting comes not from opera, but from one of the most famous of Schubert's leader, the Earl King.
The late 1930s were the high point of Lubin's career. Sir Thomas Beecham invited her to London in 1937. In 1938, she sang the role of Kundry in Parsifal at Bayreuth, and the following year, Isolde. Congratulations were showered on her from every quarter, including Hitler. This was something she could well have done without. Not only was she surprised to find his conversation so boring, but merely to have spoken to the Führer was later to be held against her. War came, and she, along with many other singers, decided it was better to go on singing at the Paris Opera rather than close the theatre and leave it vulnerable to a Nazi takeover. But at the end of the war, her enemies saw their chance. Her independence was repaid, and she became one of those victims she'd so despised. Her gardener and his wife had been taken off to Germany. The wife alone returned from Ravensbrück, claiming that Madame Lubin had informed on them both. In vain, Lubin produced documentary evidence of Jewish friends and friends of friends whom she'd managed to save from deportation. Her German links now told against her, as did some of her less tactful remarks. In 1941, for example, she'd been asked about Franco-German collaboration and replied, I'm one of its most fervent supporters. Only those who chose to read further discovered her going on to say that German rehearsal methods could teach the French a thing or two, that German choruses could act, would you believe? and that if there had been greater artistic understanding in the first place, for which, you may remember, she was pleading in 1924, then war might not have broken out. She suffered more indignities than most. She was initially banned for 20 years from living in or near Paris, heavily fined, and no theatre was allowed to employ her. Also, her passport was confiscated. It was the end of her career, and for us, the saddest might have been is that she never reached America, where, just possibly, some hard-nosed impresario might have conquered her distaste for the gramophone. What we are hearing in this programme is something over half her recorded output. As it was, she taught, almost up to her death in 1979, at the age of 89, her pupils including Régine Crespin and Ramon Vinay. But she could never forget, nor really forgive. The nearest she came to accepting her fate was to repeat what her teacher, Felia Litvin, had said to her many years before. To sing Isolde makes all the sorrow of living worthwhile.
Thank you for listening to the Operatic Pastcast. Visit the website at operaticpastcast.com. This is your producer, Donald Cullop. <laughs>